Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, on Gayamago land, uh, part of the Aurora Nation. Uh, I'm very excited today to welcome uh, Ashwin Thyssen, Ashwin Africanus Thyssen, to this podcast today. Ashwin, welcome along. Hey. It is great to have you. So I'll just read a bit of a bio for the folks uh, joining who don't know you. You're a PhD candidate at Stellenbosch University in Systematic Theology. Uh, Your research considers the intersections of race, sexuality and faith. At present, you are undergo- he is undergoing ministerial training for ordained life in the Uniting Reformed Church in Southern Africa. In short, Ashwin identifies as ontologically black, existentially queer and spiritually qu- Christian. Uh, Ashwin, welcome. I think, you know, one thing I'll, I'll clear up for our listeners, though your, your accent probably will too, is when I first um, saw that you were in, um, at Stellenbosch University, I, I assumed you were studying in Germany. Um, huh. But <laughs> I think for some reason my ne- that word in my head went geographically there. And I was like, because I think I knew you were South African, but um, I just thought you were studying over there. Anyway. Um, but so tell us folks where, where you're recording from today. So I'm originally from Cape Town, um, mm. which is, I mean, Cape Town is Cape Town in South Africa. So I am currently right now in Stellenbosch where I basically reside. Um, just, which is interesting because Stellenbosch is about 20 kilometers away from my home. Mm. So it's yeah, I live on the fringe, if one could say, of, of Cape Town. Okay. So I'm 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 at home. Either way, I'm very close to home. That's good. Um, so so I mean, there's lots we're going to discuss today. But I guess just how did you come to be someone doing a PhD in theology? Um, what kind of set a light, you know, an interest in theology, and was that you know a path that was always tied up with? also with ministry or did one precede the other? Because like I've often talked about how I was kind of found myself in a ministry role and was like, well, I better study theology. And then that led me into, I really like this and to ministry formation. I'm curious of how it's, how it's played out for you. So interestingly, that's a very interesting question for me because I always, there was a certain part of me that always, I always knew that I was going to study theology Mm-hmm. Um, one of my first thoughts about ministry, once the first time I thought about pursuing ministry was I, I was around the age 12. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I was also, I was very, I was very into church things. I was, my mother raised me to attend church every Sunday. I was actively involved in church. So church had always been there and mm-hmm. played a cons- quite an important role in my life. Um and then as I grew older, by the time I had gone to high school, around the age of 16, so I was in confirmation class at that stage. The first time I'd read Augustine's Confessions was when I was 15. Um, wow. I mean, it didn't make sense to me then. It still doesn't make sense to me now. But that, that sort of set me on the path to study theology. And then as I, you know, I did a bit of research as I went on. Mm. I, enco- I encountered Calvin's Institutes. Mm. I mean, to be quite honest, reading that as a 16-year-old, perhaps not the wisest thing ever, but it did get me stimulated into theology. Mm. Um, so by the time I completed high school, I'd already applied at Stellenbosch to study mm. theology. Um, I got in and then 
I just started and then I threw myself into theological studies and then by the time I by the time I by the time I'd neared the end of undergraduate training I'd realized that so I happen to be gay and then I'd realized one of the main challenges or obstacles on my way would be mm. um that my church would be hesitant to um ordain me and then or my denomination and then I pursued an alternative track to the conventional MDiv program in South Africa did a master of theology and then I basically wrestled with this whole thing of ecclesiology and what does that mean for queerness and then it wasn't so much I which chose the PhD as much as the PhD PhD chose me I here prefer the much more you know calvinist conception of predestination I think it was predestined that i do a phd so that's how i ended up doing phd yeah fascinating um so then what what is what are you kind of exploring in your phd what's what's kind of is that an extension of the uh, i mean you kind of was a bit in the bio but yeah is that an extension of what you were doing in the masters around uh, ecclesiology or have you kind of taken it in a slightly different path now so, so what i did in my masters was i focused on i was actually fo- studying the theology of of Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. and what i tried to do there was draw him into conversation with queer theology mm. and uncovering um what impetus queer theology of Bonhoeffer and his conception of ecclesiology um which i found were rather interesting doing it in south africa because we have a strong Bonhoeffer studies s- school of thought mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's we really use him quite a lot Mm. um but with the phd i decided to follow a different path mm-hmm. so right now my research is focused on um well the dissertation at least is titled um constructing or rather um oh my body constructing a black and queer theological anthropology so now my mm. my research is particularly interested in how in contemporary south african and african life um we could construct a theological anthropology that speaks to the realities of black and queer people mm-hmm. um on black people who are queer yeah i mean for me this this work has been done but there's not enough reflection mm-hmm. on on how to work at that intersection mm-hmm. yeah that's really that's really great um and as a like very is it isn't <laughs> it's great to be choosing something like that because I think you know there's some theologians or theological schools or, or topics that get a lot of play in the PhD world and you know sure something exciting can come from time to time but here is something that's not being developed enough that's going to have real vital connection to to a lot of lives um around you I guess how do you how have you found balancing so this is obviously something that's personal to you to a lot of people in your lives and and wanting it to have something with that in mind but also a phd is a very particular process with its own rules and norms have you found ever that like a clash or do you find it because of the personal thing that gets you through the 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 grind of the other side of things how how is that um played out i think one of the questions that i've been two of the questions that i've been sitting with a lot of late has been um regarding my research it was the question is the question who am i loving um 
And secondary to that, how am I loving them? And one of the ways that I realize that I can best um, utilize my and for queer people um, as a political tool is to do so in research. So I'm, I mean, one of the greatest things that I've realized as a person of color doing um, theological research in South Africa in this particular time, um, when most of our theological schools continue to be um, predominantly, when most of our the staff at our, uh, at our theological schools tend to be predominantly white, and white men at that, is that I, I'm, I don't exist or I don't struggle with this whole thing of you're in the academy and yet the work that you're doing speaks to the lives. I, there's no discomfort within me. I see my role as particularly an interpreter of theology with, not for, but with queer people, with those living on the margins. And if theology does not speak to their realities, to our realities, then theology ought to be silent because mm. then it is not relevant. Um, so I, I, there's no clash for me, but mm. there is there is often the clash that my those who perceive me have this clash because I tend to then um, I tend to then flirt with Western thinkers, and and that sort of that is when when people perceive me they they really struggle why I love Heidegger as much as I do or you know. Yeah. 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 Or Augustine, for that matter, <laughs> even though, you know, because of his conception of sexuality, why, why is that so? So there's no clash internally, but oftentimes I'm confronted by this, I guess, what I would call a juxtaposition. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I think I, I was partly thinking, because I was thinking of like, um, like James Cone and how he, you know, he talked about, you know, did his doctorate in, in Bart, Bart's anthropology, you know, did that. And then it was like, I mean, obviously things were happening in the world that, as he talks about, woke him out of his academic world and was like, now theology has to be, you know, yeah. the whole point now is can theology say something for the black struggle? But it's nice that you've kind of been able to not have that kind of had to wait. It's it's already been able to be developed, you know, in your academic work now. I think that is exciting. Even but though, I think, hmm. though, and I, I think one of the major reasons I'm able to do this and not to experience is because of people like Cone, mm. who have who went through that before. Mm. Um, in South Africa, of course, I would hear think of people like Alan Busak, who, mm. who experienced that discomfort so that I, in a sense, wouldn't have to, because I, I do, in a sense, mm. build on their work. Mm. Um, I mean, I grew up in a household where the name Busak was often referred to. Mm. So I wasn't, I didn't come to realize liberation theology was at work in my home prior to me coming to to study theology, so the, mm. I was already baptized in a sense in the waters of liberation. Mm. Mm. That's that's really cool, and not to stay with Cone, but we, before we were talking about Cornell West briefly, and I'm thinking of his eulogy where he talks about Cone being formed before he gets to yep. theological college. There's definitely something there too that, that, that this formation that is already happening. Um, which is great. So you mentioned um, Alan, Alan Bozak and, and I, you know, I was thinking when I was thinking about theologians in South Africa, um, like I don't think I've read that many theologians in South Africa, but he is one. Um, and interestingly, he, I was reading um, By the Waters of Meribah, like his, his more recent book, and he's very, you know, steeped in the reform tradition and, you yeah. know, opens that book with a bit of a um, 
reason for why and why stick with it um, and all of that. And and I know, you know, again, in your part of your bio is reformed. Uh, so I'm just curious a bit about, you know, I guess maybe particularly for folks who are outside of South Africa, which would be a large part of this audience, um, a bit about, you know, reformed's particular distinctive identity there uh, and also, you know, your own holding of that and, and um you know, and, and forefronting of that tradition yeah. within your the, the the various identities that you kind of um, highlight in in your bio. I think um, I, whenever I speak about being reformed, um, as a to one to use one of Busak's earlier titles, when I speak about being black and reformed, mm. I cannot but relate related to the history of colonization in Southern Africa. So when we speak about reform, we must speak about the realities that the Dutch Cape, um, and in a sense, um, they enslaved people at the Cape. And they also, the Dutch also exterminated um, people who would be considered my ancestors. Um, and part of that, um, the genocide was also a cultural genocide that took place. We, people were robbed of their languages, they were robbed of their, their culture, in a sense, their identity. They were robbed of their land. Um, so that goes into what the reform, the percolation of reformed thought and reformed existence at the Cape meant. Fast forward to the 1800s, there we start seeing the formalization, the institutionalization of the Dutch Reformed Church at the Cape. And then, um, then you have by 1857, the, so by now the Dutch Reformed Church is an institute, um, and now you have you have the indigenous people being taken up into membership. However, because interestingly, it's worded at the at this particular synod, because of the weakness of white people, because of the weakness of some, hmm. they decided that communion must be served separately to the different races. Mm. Um, because white because white people at the time were weak, mm. um, so then that sort of sets the stage for the, the the racial logic of creating different denominations for different race groups. Mm. So fast forward to the 1940s, you have a church. So in South Africa, we have this weird phenomenon where there are as many as four race categories. So you have um, European settlers white people, then you have um, you have Indian or people of Asian descent, and then you have black people or Af black African people, which is a very, very weird categories that we have developed and it really doesn't make any sense. And then you have people who um, look like me, I guess, um, of my hue, and we are called colored people because we are, are of mixed descent. Um, so you have this weird structure where there's the Dutch Reformed Church, but it has four denominations for each of these rate groups. Mm. And then this like theological or grand aparte, um, which then became the, the legal framework in South Africa. Mm. So with that in mind, um, when I think about Reformed theology and how I received Reformed theology, it's a and I, reform, I received Reformed theology in my denomination, being the United Reformed Church. It was 
because of this wrestling with the questions of justice, the questions of unity, the questions of reconciliation, and what that might mean in South Africa in the midst of apartheid. Um, that is what I think of. So in my denomination, in the 80s, they adopted what would be known as the Balak Confession. Mm. And there, there was, I mean, it's a reform document in mm. similar to um, the Bauman Declaration. And there, the theological position was elucidated on, on where God stands and God standing with the downtrodden, with the oppressed. Um, so by the time I came to consciousness, I was, I mean, I was formed, I was weaned on this theological language of justice and mm. reconciliation and unity. So when I, I mean, when I became 16, when I confessed my faith, that's confirmation process in the Reformed Church, I was quite okay with believing in justice and God mm. of the oppressed because this was what I was used to. Mm. So, and I'd received it in the Reformed Church, no less, with the history of colonialization and um, apartheid. So it wasn't this, it wasn't weird for me. What is weird for me, however, is seeing reform, seeing the global reform conversation, seeing what it means to be, especially the term Calvinist, in particularly the global north, um, those folks have it particularly bad when it comes to Calvinism, I mm. would say. Yes, yeah, ab absolutely. And I think you have such a narrow kind of reformed um, conversation. Like I know there's a, a, like, you know, a breadth in it in the, in the global north, but I think particularly if you think of the key voices who get yeah. to represent what it is to be reformed or, or, or Calvinist and what it is to um, who everyone else has to kind of reckon with or... or identify either with or against it's it's such a very particular thing and interestingly is i would say very much not in conversation with the colonial heritage yeah. of the movement if anything it is often an apologetic for them <laughs> that you know those kind of things is often employed in that way um I, so yes that must be very strange yeah go on it's weird because i mean those voices the dominant voices shall one say and those dominant voices are not dominant voices across the board. They're dominant voices online in mm. the digital sphere. Mm. Um, because, and this is the truth, and I, I, I must, I must share that I have appreciation for them, that their resources are much more readily available than, say, Busak or mm. you know, mm. or Serene Jones. You know, yes. you, they're, yeah. they're, they're not as they're much more readily available mm. than the voices that we would be listening to in the more traditional reform sense. Also, what I find interesting about those dominant voices is that the, I mean, as any, as most Protestant um, traditions, there you have the Lutheran World Federation, we have the World Communion of Reformed Churches. One does not hear those voices present in those circles mm -hmm. where the majority of reformed leaning folks are represented. Um, for example, I mean, in many of the Calvinist conversations that are currently going on, if you listen to the American voices, particularly, there's still the conversation, should women, there's still the question, should women be ordained? Now, for the vast majority of reform folks, we've clarified that position a long time ago. Mm. Um, in fact, in South Africa, in our church, we, in, we, we've been ordaining women to ministry since the early 90s, that question was settled in mm. the 80s, mm. um, so much so that one of our previous moderators 
was elected uh, to the presidency of the World Council of Churches representing Africa. So, mm-hmm. I mean, some of these, we should be, I actually think we should be more careful in how we articulate the dominance of their voices. Because while they might be dominant in global north circles, they do not speak to the realities of what is going on in the global south. That's that's very, oh, go on, sorry. No, no, that, but the other thing that I wanted to say was, mm. when I was reading, when I was 16 years old and figuring things out and figuring out if I, w- if I would pursue theology, two vo- I encountered two voices, and that's also because of social media. The one was April Fyatt, um, who's in the Reformed Church in America, and the other was um, Jess Cast. Um, I think I'm pronouncing a son correctly. I might mm. not be, but but those are ten years. Two women who mm. I'd encountered because of social media and because of mm. Twitter, um, talking about Calvinism and the Reformed tradition in a much more liberating way. Mm. So. I don't think that we should, of course, close off any possibilities. These voices are there. I just think we should, we should, um, we should pass on the mic sometimes. Absolutely. I think, like, I, I had been a few, like, last year or so. Like, I read, I think I read Serene Jones, call it Grace, um, and she's got a long, extended treatment on like the the the, um, um, the role of Calvin in her family and her life and stuff like that. And you're like. You know, because you know, you often now because of, as you say, that dominance in particular strands in the in, in the global north and, and in some other places. There's a lot of folks who get an aversion to mm-hmm. Calvin or to Reformed, and you're like, well, no, no, there's people you can be listening to and accessing who will show you a much more um, broader, totally different kind of way. And you know, and I think that's important. You know, in in, in the Uniting Church, which is obviously a you know a reformed church here in Australia, although we have the um this distinct uh, gift of being both Calvinist and Arminian at the same time. Um, but you know, we we just we just exist with that together. Um, but it's you know, people like there's a way to hold to these roots without letting exactly that particular um strain like tarnish all all things. Yeah. But I think you're right to touch on like the you know, some of those websites are just so, you know, easily accessible, free, have, you know, have have got blog posts on absolutely every topic that could ever be thought about and, and, you know, whatever. And, you know, so you can see how that, um, that, that is an impact. And it's something that I think other parts of the church need to think about how, how are other resources getting shared, other viewpoints getting, um, you know, um, made available in very easily accessible ways. Mm. But but you're doing something just, I think what you're doing is so important. You are, I, I, I hate this term, we're saying democratizing knowledge. I, <laughs> I'm, not too, I'm not too fond of it, but you are in a sense mm. making it accessible. Um, you are offering the space mm. for people to reflect critically on theology. Oh, you are offering the space mm. for people to reflect critically on theology and you're doing so in the public sphere. Hmm. And I think that is absolutely important. So these exist. The question is, are we aware of the existence? One of the things that I've seen a lot on Twitter is people say, for what from my timeline, because it's the algorithm, but hmm. people say, but we're not re- but no one is talking about that. You know, there would be like some point and then someone would say, and all the more I'm becoming convinced that it's not so much that no one is talking about it, but it's that I'm not part of the conversation. 
Mm. And the question is, am I going out on a limb to be present when that conversation is taking place? Mm. Yeah, that's very helpful. I, I thank you for that. Um, yes, hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> um, percent. So just kind of um, thinking more about you know thinking more about your studies because you were talking earlier about I know you're saying your masters was bringing in Bonhoeffer and then in other. Um, times also engaging now you know um, Heidegger or, or Augustine or Calvin they say they're reaching out reaching both north and west uh, as it were in, in, a, in a lot of things and um and I was just like thinking about like even as advice for folks who you know can sometimes feel some of these voices are so distant right and how do we bring them in because sometimes there's I think there's two things either it's look there's nothing there in the past mm. because you know they were um, they closed their eyes or were not aware of so many issues that are pertinent now. Or it can be the, I really want to appeal to them because if I can say Bonhoeffer would agree with me now, then I get a lot of, I get a lot of points in, in whatever argument I'm having. You know, I think like, you know, in, in churches that come through, like, like you know, again, the United Church which comes also through Methodism. It's, it's, you know, everyone wants to say like, well, Wesley would definitely be on my side in this debate. <laughs> um, so, so I guess trying to weigh up that, I mentioned in how you kind of maybe navigate a bit of that of the, both the, yeah, the, the, there's nothing more there that can be done for now or the um, wanting to appeal for it almost for that kind of cachet because there's so much weight mm. in, the, in their voice. You know, sometimes I think, I mean, there's certain things that Calvin said that I just reject completely. Um, we, should, we shouldn't pretend as if he was, this wonderful, I always tell people, so in South Africa, we have this, what would be called a barbecue elsewhere. We have this thing called a braai, which is you you cook meat outside. And it's a very, it's a fun time. Everyone's enjoying themselves. There's around <laughs> a few rounds of beer. I always tell people, Calvin is not the type of person you invite to a braai. You, you don't, much less Augustine. I mean, you, you, you don't. So the question is, what do we do with the discount, with the, the not so nice things that they say. I say, um, or rather not what I say, one of my one of my lecturers, um, Juliana Klaasens, um, she has a very interesting way of reading the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. She always says that we should read the text against the text. So evaluate Calvin on the very terms that Calvin puts himself out, puts himself out. Um, same way with, with Augustine, the same way with Bonhoeffer, same way even with, with Barth to read, even Cohn, um, mm. to read them by the very criteria with which they, they measure themselves, mm. but they measure other people. So ideally, I mean, let's imagine a utopia. In 50 years time, black people are no longer oppressed. Um, you know, all of the, we'll, be in, we'll live in a post-racial world. And then maybe then, Cohn's critique of white supremacy won't be needed. Mm. Then we shouldn't have, the, you know, then we should find other things in Cohn mm. to interpret and to, you know, pieces of culture and all of those things. So the best for me would say, uh, the best option for me right now is to say, I'm going to read Calvin against Calvin and utilize that which I find helpful in our time. Mm. However, I do not think that we should use theologians' work as um, political tools with which to beat up the opponent. Mm -hmm. 
I really don't find it. I also don't find it. I, I just listened to, um, I just listened to your, your podcast with Lynn-Marie Tonstead and her book, Queer Theology. Mm. I, I just don't find apologetics helpful in this day and age anymore. It does far more violence than good. And I, I just think that we should just be breaking bread together as opposed to beating other up on some, I mean, most, <laughs> most theological positions are really, like really, really not important. Like most of them. Um, and I don't think we should spend our time beating each other up about that. I think we should embrace the fact that we are different. Mm. Yes. I 100% agree, and I think we, we talked about this on a, another one of the episodes recently, which is kind of talking about how, like, a lot of those differences, you know, what am I trying to say? There's love behind these different expressions. Usually, like, you know, people are coming to different points out of, born out of their same love for God and, and love for their neighbour. Now, there's, you don't just let that be a thing you excuse everything because there's some love in their heart, you know, but but it's, you know, so often we assume that anyone who's deviating us from us does so because they actually secretly hate the faith and the church um, and are, are trying to, I don't know, bring it down from the inside or something. So yeah. There's better ways people to spend their time. You A lot of these yeah. differences are born from people's, you know, their love and their desire to respond faithfully in some way and they and they get and they led to something. And you know, at least if you're gonna have the conversation of disagreement, it's a better place to start than assuming, you know, they're they're some, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing um kind of thing, just you know, out of those very minor things. So I think that's um why is it that, that becomes you you're moving from a relationship of at least some good faith into then the discussion. Yeah. Mm. I've always found that interesting in the church, at least in the, when I say church, I mean the broad, mm-hmm. what I would call the church Catholic, um, how an institution that is literally built on this notion of faith operates in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Um, we, 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 I mean, I've oftentimes, I, I was by my synods, by the most recent synod, and at the time they were discussing sexuality and I and a few other queer friends were present and it was so interesting in the, 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 the degree to which they had approached the entire conversation of, of, pardon, of sexuality from such a position of bad faith um, as if we could not try on both sides. And I think this was a, I mean, I wasn't a delegate at the summit, so I couldn't speak, but from both sides, the progressive and the, what shall we say, conservative or the affirming and non-affirming, um, the attendees, they had bad where they had come together and it was bad faith as opposed to recognizing the difference and the the i mean the love that was at the center mm. of it all of course mm. i'm not saying that we should continue violence mm. in the name of love love is yeah. not violence mm. um but it was interesting to observe just how bad faith and part of the bad faith was tonstad's point of the apologetics so it's about mm. convincing each other as opposed to uncovering the mystery of it all. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because, I mean, Tons is right in the sense of, like, so many of our, we don't kind of get to the, what we think, you know, we start with what we feel about something and then find the theology usually that 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 confirms that or allows that or, or whatever. It's not usually the other way around. Um, yeah. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's through, like, actually being in that kind of community that might be more likely to change things. Um, and I think even like just again the apologetics thing, like I mean, like you want you know 
Calvin, another person we've been talking about, is not an apologetics person, um, though there's so many Calvinists need to, because yeah. his whole thing is like, oh, no, an apologetic argument can never convince someone to come to the faith. He's like, they, they, yes. might, be, they might be helpful um, in helping you feel more secure once you're in it or helping you answer some questions that are bugging you, but he's like, it's the spirit or it's nothing. Um, and I just wish we listen to that part yeah. more. <laughs> and, and you know and and this is actually one of the tweets i read by 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 jess cast mm. um she once made the point that if we read calvin's institutes through the lens of pastoral care our evaluation of calvin's institutes will turn will be diff, will be quite different from what we're used to mm. it was not uh it was really not it was one of my my hebrew bible professors taught me um, that the law, the, the, mm. the Decalogue, was not so much a stick with which to beat up someone as much as it is a conductor's stick to, mm. pr- to provide the rhythm. And I think, I think there's something to it. I think once we start reading ancient texts in Mindful of, their, mindful of their historical moment. And I think that is something that we might often lose. And also what often happens in much more conservative spaces in their interpretation of Calvin and the reform tradition is that they start using it for polemical reasons to sort of, you know, to attack what's the culture wars. And, mm-hmm. and also just, I must also confess, one of the, one of the effects of being in this globalized world is being plagued by Global North politics. Um, <laughs> I find it so interesting how much how much time in South Africa and in Africa we spend speaking about even in my country at least. Um, the vast majority of people are not evangelical. Mm-hmm. Majority of Christians are not evangelical. Um, the quite quite I mean, and this might surprise most people. Most. Christians in South Africa are part of the African initiated churches. So they don't even work with this Western framework of theologizing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that is just my. Yeah, I think you do, you, you know, and Australia is definitely very similar in getting sucked into, um, yeah, US, predominantly US kind of debates and dialogue and language and, and, and forgetting its own kind of traditions yeah. and also then thus forgetting its own trouble sometimes. Um, yeah. You're, you're getting just so sucked into the way race dialogue happens over there and, and ignoring there's a very different dynamic here, um, you know, and a bunch of other stuff like that. I think you, you're right. It does kind of consume in, in a different way, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that. We were saying about the, the, the law and the Decalogue because I was, yeah, that's coming up this Sunday, so I'm preparing to preach on it. Um, which will be last Sunday when everyone listens to this, so it's not a spoiler. Um, it's um, is that, that you know that that ten ten commandments as, as we, you know the way it's treated in the world, you almost expect to open Exodus twenty and see dot points. Like it's, yeah. it's so like you know the fact that we think that it can be just like kind of lifted up and and put on on tablets outside a um, a courthouse um, is just so anathema to the fact that this is this. It, it's just it, it emerges the, the 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 chapter starts with then right it's it's yeah. within a narrative it doesn't invade from from the outside it emerges from within and and is very much about okay so you've been rescued from Egypt where you were horribly exploited and you've never really been a nation on your own before 
So, yeah. and now you're going to be made this people of God in order to witness to the nation. So God is going to now gift you and, and, and conduct in this way a manner in which you cannot fall back into the patterns of Egypt um, or even the patterns of maybe the, you know, the patriarchs before and, and, and so yeah. much of the issues there and find a, a way toward flourishing. And when you think of it that way, you're like, wow, that's both changes the whole way you look at those rules and that you're much more life-giving and community affirming. And also then gives you a little bit of a better way to, if you want to challenge the way, some of those rules and, and laws that come afterwards, it's in a different scheme of rather than going, oh, what a toilsome thing. It's like, okay, yes, yeah. the community I'm in is facing different things and we might need yeah. different norming rules for us and, and we can engage that and look for the what's motivating, what's the heart of God behind it. You know, I think that just changes it a lot once you kind of exactly look at it in, a, in as in a much more pastoral light um, than, yeah. than whatever else we do. You just remind me of something, reminded me of something that I've, one of my struggles with the good Dr. Busak has been, um, so in South Africa currently we have this very tender political moment where, my, I mean, I was born after 1994. So you have my generation who are actively critiquing the establishment of democracy in and of itself, um, saying that we've made many political mistakes, um, critiquing people like um, yeah, shocker to the world. Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, um, critiquing their failures. Um, uh, and I don't think it's unjustified. I think it's very much justified. I think um, I think sometimes we, we engage a bit of historical revisionism, but I do think the critique is very much justified. Mm. And one of my issues with one of my, I was at issue with um, Dr. Buzza quite often, and I, I asked him, but how do I mean my struggle has always been how his generation and this happens often in general in mm. every I mm. mean we didn't exactly have what I would call a revolution but in every political moment you have the the veterans who in some sense fail the people eventually mm. um, and then I, I kept on asking him what how I mean how do you make sense of that. And his latest book that the, that you referenced, Children of the Waters of Meribah, really grapples with how mm. um, how we make sense of the mistakes that we've made, and also owning up to our mistakes, owning up to the mistakes that when we imagined in South Africa, the, the post ninety four South Africa, a non racial, non sexist, yeah, whatever the government mm. is saying that we should say the propagandist world, but whenever we imagined that utopia, we did. Um, pay attention to the realities that we were very much patriarchal. We enforced white supremacist logic. We, we, in a sense, silenced the realities that people at the margins aren't able to enjoy the promise of this mm. um, imagined democracy. So I think um, more often than not that the work is always ours to engage in self-criticism. Mm. Um, and to do so with the whole, what I always like reminding myself of is the Sankofa bird, which walks forward, but is always looking backward to look at history and also to remind ourselves that we do come from a line of people who have done the work. There's been work that's been put, that's been done and has gone into us and we owe it to ourselves and to those who have gone before to take the work forward. And Busak, I think does that. And Cohen also I've seen. Mm. does that in a very good way. Mm. And also women as scholars, of course, I should say, mm. women as mm. scholars have been doing the important work. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, I think that's, that's very apt. And <laughs> it was just making me think of, you know, with Exodus and given that like the Exodus leadership fails, you know, Moses and Aaron and, and even Miriam to an extent all, all fail. And, and just how, like, I think someone commented on this of like how very few biblical figures who, of some prominence end well. <laughs> they almost all fail before the end. And, and maybe that should give us some humility that, yes, yeah. we also might do, will, um, and when the critique comes, you know, from those exactly, you know, and when, especially when it's coming from within, from that new generation from within, rather than you know, you know, from outsiders, um, that it needs to be very well attended to, yeah. and, and that humility to go, yeah, okay, yeah, we were, you know, and you can, you can still be like, we were trying our best, we thought that was right at the time, but you're like, yes, we now see, or or what have you, um, and and making that work and adjusting to that, but that's that's really interesting. So yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, Coming near the end of our, our time, um, which has been just a really fun conversation. We'll have to do it, it again, particularly as, as you get closer to the end of, because I'd love to talk more about the, uh, you know, the, the, the dissertation project in specific and, and, and all of that. Um, but this has just been really great, particularly to, to talk about reform. So I'm just curious, you know, what's, what's coming up for you this year? Um, what are you kind of excited to be getting to read or write or work on? Uh, you know, in, in this coming year and um, and particularly, I guess, you know, hopefully, I don't know what it's been like in, I mean, I know a little bit about what it's been like in South Africa, obviously, with, with, with COVID, but, you know, not really, you know, in comparison to my own context, mm. but, um, you know, <laughs> doing this theology and, and exploring, you know, bodies together when maybe bodies might be able to start coming back together. <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things that COVID unleashed or, forced me to confront was um, that point by uh, the, yeah, um, Boniface said, the church is Christ existing as community. Mm. Um, and at the time when I concluded the, the master's project, I had said, the church is Christ querying our conception of community. And then mm. I went further to say, querying the oneness, that apostolicity, the Catholicity, mm. and I'm missing one now, but holy, you get the point. Holy, yeah, the holiness <laughs> of the church. Um, and and when we now had church online, mm. and also what church was online was in South Africa was different things to different people because because mm. of the economic um, disparities, some could not go online and some could, and some could rely only on WhatsApp voice notes. So there were different mm. ways of figuring things out, and. Um, that really forced me to question our concept, our conception of church, of, on being church and how we, it really required me to really think critically about what did I do, what I did in my, in my, mm. in my master's. Um, but I've parked that for, for now. I've parked this whole thing of bodies coming together at church. And I decided to focus on, on black subjectivity. So that will, most of my year will be on black subjectivity and thinking, working through, well, working on a few dissertation chapters and thinking about the development of black theology in and of itself, but also in particular, the development of black theology in South Africa mm. um, and why South African theologians as opposed to African theology and also that internal struggle, be that struggle between the two um, that we still see playing out. We really do still see, play see playing it out. 
Um, and more than that, it'll be fo- I'll be focusing on on black subjectivity and how blackness is conceived in post 94 South Africa. Mm. Um, because I've realized that the more things change, the more things stay the same. How, I mean, in America we had, we had the, I guess the revival of Black Lives Matter mm. in, in June last year. Yes. And how that sort of just, it set the world ablaze, but it set the world ablaze in South Africa. One needs to ask the question, I need to ask the question, why in a majority black country, why would there be a need to say Black Lives Matter mm. and be are the vast majority of the people? Mm. Um, so those are, those will be the questions that I'll be exploring this year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah. We're basically working at that intersection of race and, and religion and thinking about what that means in the year and now. Mm. And also bringing in reformed theology because I do think I, I, that's the one unique thing that I do bring in yep. South African discourse generally. When, when it comes to mm. to blackness and and queerness and religion, I do bring that unique reformed angle. Sorry, we're going to visit us. We're going to sit over there. That's fine. It's all right. We're finishing anyway. <laughs> um, well, that no, that sounds great. And maybe we'll have you on uh, same time next year to see what you found. Um, so this is a great treat for the listeners that we're going to show has come to visit. Um, Ashwin, thank you for, for joining us today. Is there anything you want to promote, any ways people can connect with you, with your work, anything you want to draw attention to at this point? Basically just, I'm, I'm available on, I'm available on Twitter. My, my, yeah. So you can follow my handle is at Ashwin Thyssen, basically my name and my surname. Thank you. We'll put the we'll, we'll put the um your handle will be in the in the bio. Um, that's me on the screen. Um, <laughs> you've timed it really. I, well. I must say, I must say, Liam. One of my perks, my absolute perks, with with things being from the comfort of our homes, is precisely these inopportune moments. Mm-hmm. Is when life throws itself at you, and I I because I live on my own, I actually live for these moments. Oh, so good. This is how you know that that we are living. Yes. Yes, that's that. Oh, thank you for that. That, that is great. Um, I think you could, yeah, all the lights are going to get turned off. So that's a sign that, you know, you can't stay here. Isn't that right? <laughs> that's a good sign. <laughs> you can turn the lights off. All right. Well, Ashwin, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank uh, you. Good luck with all your study this year. Oh, I'm in complete darkness now. It's very dark now. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in to Love Is Repeat. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Keep up.